3. Um, he talks about getting old and struggling on the rides. How many of you notice as you get a little bit older, anything that goes in a circle, you just can't handle it anymore? I mean, I got on the merry-go-round and got sick the last time, you know? So I feel your pain, Anthony. <laughs> uh, we're on the seven churches. I need to jump right in. Uh, we do have Family Sunday today. We have uh, potluck right after. And I'd like to get you out a little early so we have time to have food and fellowship together. Um, and so I promise I'll do my best to try to keep uh, this a little bit shorter uh, than we normally would. But really the most important thing is that we had the opportunity to have communion together and fellowship together today. Amen. So we're going to go to Revelation chapter 3. We're in verses 7 through 13. If some of you are guests with us, um, I'll just briefly remind you, uh, let you know and catch you up to where we are today. Uh, as we are in the book of Revelation, immediately everybody goes, ooh, you know, the book of Revelation. But we're doing a series on the seven churches. And in a moment, we're going to look at the sixth church that um, the Lord sends this letter through the Apostle John. We're going to be looking at the church of Philadelphia in just a moment. Um, but each time to each of the churches, he says, uh, he that, he says to the church, he that has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so he, he's saying literally, listen up. And so the name of our, our series is this, is listen up. Eight times in just a couple chapters, in two chapters, eight different times, the Lord Jesus Christ says, listen up, pay attention to what I am speaking to the churches. And what we're reminded as well is that as we look through these churches, the, the message for each church was not only for that individual church, although they were physical churches and they were real churches filled with real people like you and I, understand that the message was also for you and I today. So the, the book of Re Revelation and these letters, they are relevant. And if you've been here, at least for some of them, Throughout the last few weeks, how many of you, how many of you would say, yes, the book of Revelation is relevant for us today? How many would say that? Amen? I mean, it's been so relevant. I mean, it's like on point. And some of the churches and the things that they were struggling with and the things they were going through, we're seeing that it's the same struggles that we're facing today as well. And so when we look at the book of Revelation, don't think that it's not relevant. It is relevant. And is relevant for us today. And the message to the church of Philadelphia that we'll read here in just a moment, it's for us as well today. And so he says to each of these churches, he says, listen up. And to everyone that hears and reads these letters, listen to what the Spirit is saying. And so my challenge to you this morning is this. In the next few moments that we have, listen up. Listen to what the Lord has to say to us today. Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse number 7, he says this. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, all speaking of Christ, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. He says, see, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a, a little strength, yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Indeed, 
I will make those at the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but they lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. And also, I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out uh, no more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And all God's people said... Amen. May he bless the reading of his word. As we're reminded, the apostle John was exiled in the Isle of Patmos. And while on the Isle of Patmos in exile, he writes the book of Revelation. He literally encounters the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord speaks to him and, and he's given these letters. And then these letters are distributed to the seven churches and then beyond. Um, the seven churches in Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey, they were real churches. I don't know if we have any of the pictures there, if you, if you want. Uh, but there's, um, this is the, the, the church at Philadelphia. And in a moment, we'll see this mention of these pillars. And there's still these pillars that, that stand. And there's a, a, just a couple of pictures. There's not really a lot to say about the city of Philadelphia. There's not a lot left. But as we always do in the introduction, I want to just remind you of some of the things that he says right off the be at the beginning of this letter. First of all, we see Christ. It is Christ addressing this church. And he refers to himself as he who is holy. And we're reminded that we serve a holy God. Amen? And as we studied previously, that holiness matters in the life of a Christian. But I like this. It says this. Christ says to this church, he says, I am the one who is holy. But he also says this. He that is true. I'm reminded of a very famous passage in the scriptures in John 14, 6, where Jesus said this. If you know it, say it with me. I am the what? The way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He reminds this church that he is the truth, that he is the way. He said to his disciples in the teaching, he says, I am the true vine. In the vine and the branches, he says, I am the true vine. And he, we understand that what Jesus is saying is there are many false teachers and many false prophets. As we studied in the other churches, there was a great deal of false teachers and false prophets and, if you will, false religions that they were dealing with. And it reminds the church of Philadelphia that he is the truth and that he is the true vine. He is the true way. Christ also will make mention of this in just a few moments, but he says that he has the key of David, that he has the key of David. And, and what he's saying is this, is that he has power, that he has authority. You know, he mentioned uh, in Scripture, you'll see that all the way back in the book of Isaiah, it mentions the, the, the idea of a key, and that a key is a representation of authority, having authority, having power, having the ability to open doors and close doors. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But we see Christ as he addresses this church. We see the city, the city of Philadelphia. 
And as you saw the picture of the pillars, that's all that's really left. But he, re, he refers to Philadelphia as the faithful church. The church here was the faithful church. The city of Philadelphia, the word Philadelphia means brotherly love. How many of you have ever been to the, to the city of Philadelphia? Many of you. I've spent a number of years in the city of Philadelphia. I did inner city ministry. Let me tell you, it is not the city of brotherly love. I mean, it's really sad. Just recently, there was, there was a report. Just recently, it was on national news, and it's, it's actually becoming a huge problem in our country. And I don't mean to get sidetracked, but in the city of Philadelphia, it's kind of where it really started. You know, down there uh, where they filmed the Rocky movies and all the Rocky movies, um, if you, it's not even safe to walk through those neighborhoods anymore. And if you've been there recently, you'd understand. And it's not the city of brotherly love. But now there's just, how many of you have ever heard of this new drug called Trank? You guys ever hear of it? Nobody? Oh my goodness, the zombie drug? Are you people living under rocks? <laughs> We're safe out here. Well, you don't want to know. Basically, it's literally what they give the horse. It's horse tranquilizers. How many of you have heard of fentanyl, right? Everyone knows fentanyl. You guys are way behind the times. The new drug, the new thing that's beginning to creep into the drugs that's being literally just pushed into, into the, the, the drugs is this. It's called trank, and it turns people literally into walking zombies. It's now hitting in Los Angeles. It's out in San Francisco. It's now up in Portland. And by the way, it's now getting into our small towns and communities. And many people are, are doing drugs, not realizing that it's laced with what's called trank. And literally, it turns them into walking zombies. And beyond that, it's so potent that it literally begins to eat the flesh. And there's all these open wounds. This, this is, this means it's a huge, huge, it's becoming an epidemic in our country. It's a sad thing. You go to the city of Philadelphia today, it is not the city of brotherly love. But this city was called the city of brotherly love. As we know, it's located there in, in Turkey. It was a very large city, but there's not much left in the city, and there's not much really said about this city, because although it was a large city, it was a very poor city. And the reason why it was a poor city is because the city of Philadelphia literally sits on a major fault line and there was earthquake after earthquake. So they would build, they would have an earthquake, they would all be destroyed, they would come in and try to rebuild it again and then they'd have another earthquake, they'd try to rebuild it again and another earthquake. And so understand the city was a large city, large metropolis, but yet it was very poor because of the earthquakes. And that's why there's not a whole lot left. It's amazing, you saw the pictures of those pillars and Jesus even makes reference to those pillars. Those pillars are still standing even after many earthquakes. But then he speaks of this church, and he says to this church a lot of great things. They were a faithful church. Each week we kind of outline it by looking at Christ's complement of the church, his confrontation, and then his comfort. I want you to notice the cool thing is there's only two of the three that we have to cover today. So that means it's going to be a shorter sermon. Amen. But I want you to notice Christ's compliment to them. And he, can, he compliments them. He commends them. He says to this church, as he writes this letter, he says, I know your works. I know you're a working church. And I can see all that you're doing. And as he, 
speaks to this church, it's interesting, he makes an important statement that I really like this. He says, I have placed before you an open door. Earlier he says, I have the keys of David. I have that authority. And he says, I can open doors that no man can shut, and I can shut the door so that no man uh, uh, can open it. He says, I have the ability to open doors and close doors. And what's cool is this, is he says to this church, he says to the church of Philadelphia, I see your works and I see your labor and I see what you're doing. And he says, I have given you an open door so that no one uh, can close that door. I've opened the door for you. And it's interesting, I think he reveals to us why. As you look in this passage, you'll see that he makes a number of statements. He says, I place before you an open door that no one can shut. He says, I know you have little strength. Notice what he says, yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. I believe what he's saying is this, is that there is a blessing in obedience. That when you're obedient to God's word, he says, yet you have little strength. Some people say the idea was this, is that the church was a humble church. It was a poor church, and maybe it was because they walked in humility. But what we do see here is this, is that this church was an obedient church, that these people were obedient, and because they were walking in obedience to the, to the Lord, and he says, they did not deny my name. They were not ashamed of Christ. He said, I have set before you an open door that no one can shut. Let me just make this very practical for all of us today, and I want to remind you of something. It is God who opens doors in our lives and closes doors. I can tell you this, that there are times in my life where I've prayed and specifically asked God to open doors, and I've seen God literally open doors. There have been times in my life where God has closed doors, but in my own stubbornness, I keep trying to, to go through that door. How many have ever done that? You know, Paul was a very wise man. Now, it was in regards to his work and to his ministry, but he always was looking for open doors and closed doors. And Paul never tried to, as far as we know, I mean, he may have made some mistakes. There's times maybe where he did try to force his way, but most of the time, the Bible says that Paul would go to a region, and, and if he was completely rejected and the door was slammed shut, he even makes mention of this in his letters to the church. He says, there was no open door, so we went to another region, and there was an open door. He mentions how there was this call from Macedonia, and how God was calling him to go, and so he went to that, and he says, there was an open door for us, and they went, and they began to preach the gospel and, and start church. Can I say this to you, that sometimes, sometimes in our Christian lives, we try to push open doors that God has already closed. And can I tell you, once the God closes the door, it cannot be opened. And if you were able to open it and get to the other side, it won't be pretty over there. <laughs> Amen. I think it would be wise for us to pray in our own personal lives and to pray and say, God, I want your will in my life and I want you to guide and you to lead in my life. And Lord, if this is not your will, close the door. Please, God, close it, shut it, and then have enough wisdom to not keep trying to push your way through it. Amen. But then to pray and say, Lord, if this is your will, open this door and make it a clear and straight path. This church, the Lord opened the door for them. It was that of God's power and God's blessing upon them. And he says the reason why he gave them the open door, he says, was because of their obedience. 
And he says, also because of your courage, that you were not ashamed of my name, you did not deny my name. And so we see Christ complimenting this church. It's interesting because in this letter to the church of Philadelphia, there is no condemning, there is no confrontation, there is no correction to this church. There are only two of the seven churches that the Lord did not correct, that he did not confront. Now let me emphasize this. This is important. This was not a perfect church, okay? How many of you think that it was a perfect church? Do you really think it was a perfect church? Listen, it's filled with sinners saved by grace. So was it a perfect church, yes or no? No. It was not a perfect church. There is no perfect church. The idea is, I believe this, is that Christ, only two churches he did not confront. He did not uh, condemn. And he did not say, you better straighten up or I'm going to come down there, as he did in the others. These are two of the seven churches that were healthy churches. You see, there was five of the seven churches that were unhealthy. But may I remind you of something? Yet Christ still loved all seven the same. Are you with me? He loved all seven churches. Two of the seven were, were healthy churches. By the way, that, that's, that, I would say, you know, when you really think about it, how many of you visited around? Now, I'm not just about here in Cedar. I'm talking about when you move and when you go places. You visit churches. Not every church is a healthy church. Okay? Amen, people? Not every church is a healthy church. It's interesting that only two of the seven, and these were first-generation churches. Many of them had, had great teachers even some of them, the Apostle John was the pastor at Ephesus. So two of the seven were not healthy churches. But yet he does confront those that are unhealthy and he corrects them. And as we studied last week, it's interesting. As we studied the church of Sardis, remember, he confronts them. And we end up studying in church history that that church had a revival and that they took the confrontation, the correction, and they let God move in it, and the church actually was better for it. Amen? The only two churches that there is no confronting is the church of Smyrna, which was the church under great persecution. This is interesting. And then this church, the church of Philadelphia, which was a church that was basically in poverty. Is it interesting that the two churches that were in poverty and under great tribulation were the two that were the most right with the Lord. Isn't that interesting? As we studied, there were other churches that were filthy rich, and they even said, we have everything. We have all that we need, and they had all of their wealth. They had all of these things, yet they were not the healthy churches. I also want to just throw this out here, and that is this, is that when... Christ confronts the other churches. He is correcting, but he's not critical. He has a correcting spirit, but not a critical spirit. Does this, is that bearing witness? You see, when Christ confronts the churches, it's in a corrective way. It's because he loves the church and he's going to try to discipline it in order to, to correct it. May I also remind all of us of this importance, that Christ was never, if you will, critical. His desire, he says, was to correct. Whom the Lord loves, it says, he chastens. I have been in sports my entire life, from this age all the way through. I've been coached and I've been a coach. 
and I am coaching. I have experienced coaches who are just critical. They just scream and yell at you, and they, they d d just degrade you. Back when I played sports, way back, you know, when we practiced on the ark, way back then, but you know, back when I played sports, things were different. Coaches literally touched you, hit you, pushed you, shoved you. I've been grabbed by the face and literally spit hitting me in the face. I've had coaches take balls and, and literally hit you with them. You're not, you're not paying attention to take a ball and throw it as hard as they can and hit you in the face with it, hit you in the stomach. I've had coaches who had literally, wrestling coaches, I weighed 140-some pounds my junior and senior year, and my, both my, my coaches were like heavyweights, and they would get on top, and they would just, they'd say, let me show a move, and then they would take out all of their anger, all of, the, all of their stress, all of their aggression, and they were mad at their wife, and now they're going to rip my arms off, you know? <laughs> it was a different world back then. And I had some coaches that would just call you names and and then and, and you'd say, well, what can I do to fit? And they wouldn't help you. They're just critical. Not trying to correct. Not in a way to, to make you better. Can I say this? That I love how Christ demonstrates this important aspect, and that is this, is that Christ had a corrective spirit, not a critical spirit. And if we're not careful, even within the church body, that many times people get critical, but there's really no reason for why they're saying what they're saying, because they have no desire to correct the problem. Somebody say amen there. Been there, done that. Happens in marriages, happens in homes, happens in families. And if you're not cautious, if you're not careful, you can allow a critical spirit to creep in, and it's not constructive, and it's not correcting. Christ had a, a, a constructive spirit about him, a correcting spirit. But be cautious of a critical spirit. Reminds me of two, two hunters. They, they loved to hunt, and they, would, they were duck hunters. Every year they duck hunt. And, and the one friend, he was just that critical guy, always found negative, 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 critical. Always, and it was... He was always critical of the other hunter, his dogs. And so during the off-season, you know, leading up, he, the other hunter said, I'm going to get the best dog that money can buy. And he's not going to be able to find anything critical to say about my hunting dog. He went out and he bought a beautiful, beautiful black lab, beautiful black lab. Spent $10,000 on it. And the reason why is because the dog was trained so well that the dog did not have to swim to get the ducks. The dog could walk on water to get the ducks. <laughs> and so the first day of duck season rolled in, and he could not wait. I mean, he couldn't wait to get out there and show this guy this beautiful black lab that he spent $10,000 on. And so they get out, and they get all set up way early in the morning, and they get out, and they're in their blinds. The first wave of ducks start coming through and all that. The ducks come in and they pull up their guns and they start boom, 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 boom. And the duck falls. Here he's so ready. And he tells the dog, he says, retrieve. And the dog literally just, like just beautiful stride, struts on top of the water, goes out into the middle of the lake, picks up the duck and brings it back and drops it at his feet, right at the owner's feet. And he stood there so proud. And the other guy was speechless. Couldn't say anything. 
And so finally he says, well, what do you have to say? What do you think of my dog? He goes, well, shoot, that dog can't even swim, can it? <laughs> Be cautious of a critical spirit, amen? <laughs> we see Christ comforting this church. In the last few verses, verses 9 through 13, he comforts them with a number of promises. We won't spend much time, but we'll spend a little bit of time on one of them in particular. But he does say this. Here's some of the promises he makes. He says to them that those who are of the synagogue of Satan, those who, who say it's the idea of false religion, and those who say that they are followers of Christ but are not, he says to them, he says, they will know someday that truly you are of the one true church. And he says that they will know that you were loved by me. He says, in fact, they will be humbled and they will be humiliated and they will come and bow in your presence. And so it reminds them that, that yes, you are of, of uh, true followers of Christ and you have not denied my name. And there will be a day where others will come to the reality that, that, that you were right. He says to them, and I like this, this is interesting, this is where people can get into some controversy, but I do need to teach the passage. He says to this church that he will keep them from the hour of temptation or that hour of testing. And notice what it says, that will fall upon all of the earth. He says, I will keep you, remind, be reminded, it's not just a church of Philadelphia, because what does he say? He says, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to all of the churches. So this message that he's saying to Philadelphia is the same message to you and I today. He says this in this passage. He says, I will keep you from that hour of testing, that hour of temptation, that hour of trial. But this is what's interesting, that will fall where? On what? The and what? Entire earth. I'll share with you what I believe the Scripture teaches here. Now, there are different beliefs on this. I do not believe it's something you should fight over, debate over, argue over. But the, the idea is this. I believe what he's speaking of is the day, uh, the, the, the time of the tribulation period. Have you ever heard of the tribulation period? The seven-year tribulation period that will fall upon the earth. I believe that what he's saying here to this church and to all churches is he says, I will keep you from that time of testing, that time of trial that will fall upon all of the earth. It's interesting because in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you hear the church, the church, the church. He speaks to the church. The next scene in Revelation chapter 4 is this, is that you see the door of heaven open. And a voice, and you hear the sound like a tr trumpet that says, come up here. That's called what we refer to in scripture and theology as the rapture, the catching away. You see in Revelations 1, 2, and 3, he's speaking to the churches. In Revelation chapter 4, you hear the trumpet sound. And the Bible says that he says to the churches, come up hither, come up. And you don't see the church mentioned again throughout the book of Revelation. I believe it's because the church is raptured, they are, caught up, they are caught up, they are kept from that hour of tribulation. There are some who believe that the tribulation will happen in the middle. There are some who believe that Christians will stay all the way through the end of the tribulation. They'll be caught up briefly for a few moments and then come back with the Lord. When we come back, I'll read it in a moment, when we come back with the Lord in the air on the day of the battle of Armageddon. But let me share with you just a couple other passages. 
Look with me in Genesis 18.23. We'll put it here. Abraham asked God an important question. Abraham said this. And Abraham came near and said, speaking to the Lord as he is with these angels, he said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Is that a good question? Would God destroy the righteous with the wicked? Is that a good question, yes or no? Absolutely. Now we're going to see the answer to that question. Jump over to Genesis chapter 19. Lot lived in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. How many of you are somewhat familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his family? Abraham went and prayed and he begged God and he said, would you, he knew his family was there. And we don't have time to look into all this, but it started with, and it's the power of prayer. He said, would you just destroy the city if there were 50 righteous? God said, no, if there weren't 50. And then Abraham, a very good negotiator and bargainer, he was able to bargain all the way down to 10. And he said, if there were just 10 righteous in the city, would you spare the city? And God said, yes, I would spare the city. But Lot, uh, Lot lived in that city with his family. And you'll have to read this passage. I encourage you to do it in your own time this week. But we'll look here in a moment in chapter 19. But Abraham asks an important question in the book of beginnings. We see the nature of God. We see the character of God. We see who God is. The book of beginnings, what is God like? How does God respond? How does God act? And Abraham, the father of the faith, asked God an important question. God, will you pour out your wrath? Will you, will you destroy the righteous along with the wicked? That's an important question. And all God's people say, yes, that's an important question. It's a huge question. And so Genesis 19 gives us the answer. They want Lot to leave with his family. It ends up being just he and his two daughters. And listen to what he says. Then Lot said to them, Please know my lords. Indeed, now your servants have found favor in your sight. He's speaking of him and his daughters. And you have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life. But I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and die. See now, this city is near enough to flee, and it is a little one. Please let us escape there. It is, is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. They were going to take him to the mountains. He says, can you take me to the little city? We're going to see what it's called, a little city, a little town called Zor. And he said to him, see, I have, I have favor, favored you concerning this thing. His response is, I'm going to give you favor about this request. Also, in that I will not, listen to this, listen to what he says, I will not overthrow the, this city, the little city of Zor, which you, have spoke, which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there. Listen to these words, for I, say it with me, cannot. It doesn't say he will not, it says he what? Cannot. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Did you catch that? Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zor. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities. 
and what, what, what grew on the ground. Then God sends the destruction. Do you see what he says? He even spoke, he says, I cannot do anything till, to this place until I get you out into a safe place. May I say to you, that is the, that is the, the character and the nature of God. And I truly believe that. Now, it's not here to, to argue and debate. Some believe it's in the middle. Some believe it's at the end. But I believe here that we should hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And he says, I will keep you from that time of testing that will fall upon the entire earth. That day of tribulation is what I believe the Scripture to be speaking of. One other passage about this, and that is in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 10. This one he says, now brethren... Concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's writing a letter to the church of Thessalonica. He says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together, that's the rapture, the catching away. He says, our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or to be troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if it was from us. As though the day of Christ had come. They thought that the day of Christ had come and they're already in it and in the thick of it. He says, let no one deceive you by any means. Notice what he says. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. That word falling away is the word apostasy. Where the world will fall into complete apostasy. He says that day of, of the Antichrist can't come to play until... There's a complete apostasy until there's a falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed. That's the Antichrist he's speaking of, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that, that, um, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God. Showing himself that he is God. The Antichrist will put on such a good show that he will deceive the world. He will deceive the world to be a great apostasy. Daniel calls it the abomination of desolation. Where he, he begins to receive worship as if he is God. He's empowered by Satan. And this is deep and there's a lot there. We're just, just flying over at 35,000 feet, Okay. But he says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, when Paul was in Thessalonica, he said, I told you these things. He said, I taught you these things. I told you these things. But there were people sending letters and people scaring the church and saying that they were already in it. And he says, no, that's not the case. He says, and, I, and he says, and now you know what is restraining. There's a restraining work. There's something restraining this great apostasy. The falling away that has to happen first before the world will believe the lie. It says this, and now you know that what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. The Antichrist will be revealed. But notice this, for the mystery of lawlessness, that Satan is already at work. Only he, listen to this, think, look at these words, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. The he there, I believe, clearly is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is that restraining work. And the scripture says, until the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, the great apostasy can't come. Aren't we not called to be salt and light, correct, church? We, the church, are the salt. We, the church, are the light. But beyond that, let me ask you something. The Holy Spirit, where does the Holy Spirit dwell? Where does he dwell? In believers. 
So if we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, how do you get the Holy Spirit to be removed so that the evil one can begin his work? If we're the salt and the light, can I tell you something? I truly believe this in all my spirit. The great apostasy cannot come until the church is removed because we are the salt and we are the light and we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Amen? And the Holy Spirit is that restraining work. And he says when the Holy Spirit is removed, then that lawless, that lawless one, then he will be revealed. Then the great apostasy can come. This is what he says. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Whew, amen. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power. Look at this. He has great power and signs and lying wonders. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. I believe that he's promising the church, the church of Philadelphia, and you and I, that we will be caught up, that we will be taken out. The great apostasy will come. The tribulation will come. We'll see in just a moment. Then we will return with the Lord at his second coming. Now, there's different debate on that, and people believe different things. Can I tell you something? It is not anything to fight or argue over. Amen? It is not worth it. We'll let the Lord sort it out and we'll find out who's right and who's wrong. I remember years ago, though, I was pastoring in Columbia, Missouri. It's been 15 years at least. And I was teaching through these letters and a little bit of the book of Revelation. A very popular guy on, on uh, Christian radio. He was saying that we were three and a half years in and he had all the reasons. And we were three and a half years into the tribulation period. People asked me, I said, I'm not going to argue and debate and fight over. I said, but in about five or six, we'll see who's right and who's wrong. <laughs> and it's been 15 years, you know. We weren't in the middle of the tribulation period. I do want to emphasize this, that many times Christians think, oh, well, then we won't see persecution. We won't see difficult times. No, do not believe that lie. That's a lie from the devil as well that we will see tribulation. All who live godly will suffer persecution. He says to those who, who overcome, he says, as we've said each week, he says, to those who overcome, he says, I will honor you. How do we overcome? Revelation 12, 11 says that we overcome by the blood. We, we had the communion today by the blood of the lamb and the word of his testimony. He says, all who overcome, how do we overcome? John tells us earlier in 1 John 5, he says that we overcome by our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says to the church, all of those who are overcomers, all of you who overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony, he says that you will be honored. You see, in the Philadelphia earlier, we saw those great pillars. That it, in that city of Philadelphia, if they wanted to honor someone, they would put their name upon one of those pillars. The idea is that the Lord is saying that someday in eternity, our names will be on the pillars, maybe possibly there in the new Jerusalem, but the idea is that our names are written in heaven. He also gives them some encouragement as well. He tells us, in essence, that there will be no more separation, there'll be no more goodbyes. He says to the church, it's the idea of this, is that, that, that we belong to him, 
and he belongs to us. He says that you'll have a new name. The idea is you'll have the new name of Christ. You'll have the name of God attached to you. You'll have the name of heaven and the name of the new Jerusalem upon you. The idea is, is that, 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 that we, we are his prized possession. Amen. And he makes mention of this new name that Christ has. And I want to just finish with this passage, and we're finished. In Revelation 19, 11 through 16, as he comforts this church, he speaks of this new name. And Revelation tells us that Christ will have a new name that, that only he knows. But I want you to notice that there is the catching away of the believers. There's a time where Christ comes for his saints, but then there's a time where he comes back with his saints. And here in Revelation 19... The battle of Armageddon, we see him mention this name again, but we also see that we are coming with him. As last week we studied that we, we have those robes, those white robes, amen? He mentions them as well. Notice what he says, and we'll finish with this reading. It says, now I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse. And he who sat him was called faithful and true. By the way, did we read what did Jesus say? Earlier in this passage in Revelation chapter 3, he says, I am the true one. Amen. He says, now I say that, that heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he that saw, sat on him was called faithful and true. And righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his, on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one except himself. That no one knew except himself. He was clothed in a robe. Notice what it's dipped in. What's it dipped in? It's dipped in blood, his own blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. By the way, that's you and I. That's believers. Amen? We will come back and ride victorious with Jesus Christ. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And he himself, uh, he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen? Jesus Christ, by the way, is coming again. Amen? He is coming again. And he will not be coming in, in humility. He will be coming in authority with great power. And may I remind us of something? If you have overcome by the blood of the Lamb, we are victorious through Jesus Christ. Amen? And we are on the winning side. And all God's people said this morning, amen. Let's stand and have a word of prayer this morning.